Hello, everyone, and welcome to Global Gurus. For every Friday, we explore stories of international business and speak with industry leaders operating around the world. I'm your host, Philip Auerbach of Auerbach International. Thank you for joining us. If you're tuning in for the first time, we start each podcast with a running segment called Faux Pas Fridays, where we explore funny blooper or mistranslation or misuse of words that does not quite convey the professional image that your organization should want to project. So since today's guest is from Africa, uh, I wanted to use a blooper from Africa from a story in a Nairobi newspaper, which said, of course, in English, a new swimming pool is rapidly taking place since the, the contractors have thrown in the bulk of their workers. <laughs> That's funny. <laughs> so, okay. as we can see, uh, when words are misused, either in translation or in common usage, uh, the meaning changes quite a bit. Uh, so, yeah, um, dramatically so. Dramatically so. <laughs> Today's guest is Mr. Mo Sisse. And uh, he will tell you a bit more about her, his background, but he, uh, we're doing something a bit in reverse today in that um, we normally interview people who do business from either from the US or Europe in other countries. Uh, Mr. Sisse has come to the United States from his native Guinea in West Africa. And so we're going to explore again, a bit of reverse uh, how one does business in Africa versus the United States, and just to see, you know, the, the cultural differences as well. So, uh, welcome, Mo. Glad you're with us. And perhaps you could tell us a bit more about your background and how you grew up and how you gained your global experience. My pleasure. Uh, it's uh, thank you for having me. Uh, it's always a pleasure to have these type of conversations, especially for, with someone like yourself that actually traveled uh, to many more countries than I have. Um, so yeah, my journey is um, uh, quite unique as well as many immigrants. I uh, came here over 20 years ago, uh, initially lived in New York and then moved here to uh, San Diego, California, where now I live. Um, so the experience is unique in the sense that my mother uh, was an entrepreneur herself. Uh, the way that she afforded to bring me to the U.S. is because she was uh, and had an alliance with other um, entrepreneur women from Guinea, from West Africa, and they would travel to other countries in Africa and also in the U.S. and Europe selling African clothes. So at an early age, I already kind of got a taste of what entrepreneurship could look like the different versatility that it can give you um so as i started my journey here in the u.s uh, i would love to tell you that i jumped into entrepreneurship right away but i didn't i worked in corporate america for uh, almost a decade and finally pulled the trigger in launching my own business uh, into, um, at the end of 2015. Uh, so that's the nutshell of our story and how we landed here and how the whole international perspective, um, beginning with my mother to myself now has really transpired. And you have a very unique fashion company and perhaps you could <laughs> tell us about that and especially what makes it unique. Yeah, it's my pleasure. So uh, Meraki Allure is the brand, and we have an audacious goal 
of being uh, the global leader in sustainable luxury goods. Sustainability is specifically important to us as we uh, create uh, custom and ready-to-wear clothes for men and women, specifically because fashion now has become the third waste, most wasteful um, industry in the world, and that's next to the oil industry. So it's a very important for us to be part of the solution for our industry versus the problem. And is the food industry number two most wasteful? And uh, they basically, depending on the year, they'll go, they're interchanged. But basically, fashion becomes uh, number three, and in the agriculture, also food will be number four. So they'll interchange because a lot of what the fashion industry needs also is derives from agriculture. You know, and the cotton and all these natural products that are derived from the soil. Um, one small example is back in the day, and I'm sure you can relate to this as well as someone that has traveled, um, Philip, is that back in the day, the fashion industry would respect the seasons. You would get new products four times a year, depending on the seasons. But now products are being produced almost on a weekly basis versus per season. Yeah. Cool. Yeah, I didn't yeah. quite realize that. I know that a lot of it is just in time ordering, but I didn't realize that it was, you know, on, almost on a weekly basis. That's pretty mm -hmm. dramatic. And as you say, that can be very, very wasteful. Um, exactly. Um, could you share with us uh, perhaps about your, your launch? And uh, I presume you launched domestically in the United States first and then expanded a bit abroad. Is that correct? Exactly. So for us, one of the key things that naturally helped us expand abroad is strategic alliances. Uh, so one of the strategic alliances we have is, uh, funny enough, with a dating coach. Uh, she only works with men and she uh, works with these executives and things. And uh, basically, she has clients all over the world, including Canada and other countries. So basically, that's what was the first time we stepped outside the U.S. was with strategic alliances like that, where I would work with her clients and dress them uh, for their dates and sorts. So it was a fun thing, but it also, it's uh, it's funny how life happens. <laughs> yeah, it's wonderful. Mm -hmm. um, tell us a bit of how US business practices deal, differ from African business practices. Uh, if you were mm -hmm. launching Iraqi in Guinea or in another West mm -hmm. African country, how would it perhaps mm -hmm. be different than what you did here? That's, that's a great question. Um, on a small scale, I will tell the average American, even doing business here in California is different than me doing business in Texas. Mm -hmm. You know, the, the laws are different. The, the type of taxes we pay in California is completely different than we Great. pay, <laughs> that you pay in Texas. But that's just a small example. But as far as my country, there's a lot less red tape for businesses. And there's also a much quicker turnaround as far as when you can launch and when you can get partnerships. You know, uh, a lot of things back home in my country, specifically in Guinea, can happen on a handshake or even based on relationships you have. But here, with the way that the law is and the way that the government is structured, um, things are just very procedure-oriented. And sometimes you're wondering why you're waiting a month for some paperwork uh, that should just take a couple of days. You know, So that's one small example. But really, 
one of the reasons I connected with you and why I love what you do. It reminds me of a funny story. I think it was Ford or Chevy that came out with a car in Mexico and they named the car Nova. Right. Not realizing that the word in Spanish is like no go. Right. You know, and the car didn't do that well in Mexico at that time. So um, it made me, and I heard about that story even before we launched our company. So it made me very conscious about how things translate uh, overseas and being very aware of that, you know. Uh, hence why we chose our name. Our name, um, Meraki, is actually a Greek word. It means to do something with love, uh, with uh, to put a piece of yourself in your work. So I wanted to pick a company name that's also easy to pronounce in multiple languages. That's great. Yeah, yeah. it's wonderful that you did that. Um, mm -hmm. Actually, I have learned over the years that the Nova story is not true. Because you know anyone would know that Nova in Spanish means no go, and Ford was probably not that stupid to do that. But they have <laughs> um, branding blunders in other countries, um, mm. and I, I, I'm having an absolute blank, which is so stupid because I normally know this off the top of my head. But mm. um, Ford introduced, oh yes, of course, uh, Ford introduced the Pinto car. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I remember that time. And uh, the Pinto was here in the United States. Um, mm -hmm. But Pinto, it turned out in Brazil, and uh, Brazil speaks Portuguese. And mm -hmm. in Brazilian slang, Pinto means, well, shall we say, male genitals. Ah, I see. <laughs> That's funny. <laughs> so when they changed the name from Pinto to Cavalho, which means horse, uh, uh, you know, like a speedy horse, then the car yeah. starts selling instead of when it's selling, you know, <laughs> it's not terribly good. Um, That's funny. <laughs> yes, these are the kind of branding blunders that um, the companies uh, endure a lot. Well, actually, companies are smarter now than they were, but um, mm -hmm. there's some very, very funny ones that my company mm -hmm. publishes about, you know, funny, very funny international branding blunders with just company names. <laughs> and, uh, and you, were, you know, you're very wise in looking for, say, a Greek word that means, you know, mm -hmm. love, the way one puts love mm -hmm. into, a, uh, into the process. But mm -hmm. um, what I found over the years is that uh, many companies, many many companies, especially large ones or multinational ones, do not take the time to think how how the brand name or the company name or the slogan would work in other languages. Mm -hmm. And this happens to be a service that my company, Auerbach International, offers to to screen them to be sure that they do work properly. Um, mm -hmm. But especially the multinationals, and I hope. A listener will forgive me, but multinationals tend to be a bit more arrogant and think they know everything and mm. don't need help. And that's when mm. they make these big mistakes mm. without very much. Sure. So, yeah. um, it's very interesting what you said about um, doing business on a handshake. Uh, mm. I remember in my native Philadelphia hearing the stories, and I know that this happened especially in the uh, 1910s, 20s, and perhaps in the 30s, but certainly in the 20s. Mm. Um, that business here is also done on a handshake. And we have a street mm. here called Jewelers Row. Um, mm. Literally, um, a jeweler would, would take a bunch of diamonds or rubies out of his pocket and ask another jeweler whether he'd like to buy some uh, for you know, the rings and other 
pieces he was making mm -hmm. and they would seal the deal on a handshake and that's it wow um, and not you know not the contracts that we have now and all the mm -hmm. liability and all of that those mm -hmm. issues so again it was based on trust and mm -hmm. relationships and that's very much how business is done in other parts of the world as well mm -hmm. absolutely i agree i agree it's probably how humanity began and you know when we were war commuto when we knew our neighbors i'm sure you know that's part of humanity back in the day but you know as things expanded um people maybe shied away from that but as you already know about african culture we're so community driven that a lot of those things values still uh remain um even when there are disputes um there gets settled basically in meetings you know mm. um um, is it meetings like with the 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 head of the, the the tribe or the clan or something, or is it meetings with the business leaders? It depends on what the 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 context is or what the agreement is, you know. But it could be in our case, we're talking business, so it could be the business leader uh, of that of that entity or that organization to discuss it. And of course, there's still legal agreements and contracts, of course. Um, but I just, um, pertaining to your initial question, there's just a lot less um, legal procedures like it is here, especially in California, uh, <laughs> when you want to do business with people. So, yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, that's very true. And again, that's the way it's often done in other parts of the world that are very community oriented. Um, and certainly on the you know, on a personal level or on a non-business level, if there are disputes, it's often resolved not through the courts, of course, as one would do here, but uh, with the village elders, for example, or the, the leaders mm -hmm. of the community, however that's defined. Mm -hmm. um, perhaps you could share with us also some cultural issues um, that you've encountered here in the United States and just differences in how one does business here versus there. Some cultural issues, you said? Yes. Mm -hmm. Yeah, um, in comparison to Guinea, um, the challenge here I foresee in culture is sometimes, um, how do I put it in the right context? Um, is sometimes the value is ends up being more based on the material thing than the relationship with the person you're dealing with. So for instance, and my mother, since she's been an entrepreneur all my life, mostly in Africa and things like that, um, her relationship, her reputation was like her credit line, line mm. of credit for business. Right. You know that's, what I mean? Yeah, that's fast. And it's hard. Yeah, it's hard for me to, to find the right words to compare that to American context in a sense. You know, um, I think, you know, of course, saying, yeah, so, go ahead. I think what you're saying is that, again, it's based on relationships and trust, ultimately. Mm -hmm. And the, exactly the network of um, buyers, vendors, buyers, vendors, whatever that your mm -hmm. mother has created mm -hmm. uh, and perhaps friends of friends that she would get mm -hmm. a, an introduction to. Mm -hmm. um, then the relationship is based on trust and not necessarily on the and the formal legal contracts and the way one does things here. Absolutely. So that's one part of it. And the other part of it is, uh, as you can attest to this as well, is um, the way that the American um, um, 
work balance is mm. not the same. And <laughs> uh, my country, there's just some days that there's not going to be no work, and you can't even sell people to try to work that day. Of course, you can always find, you know, people that desperately need to make money, and you know, and things like that. But generally speaking, family time is so important. Mm. Um, being able to be with your loved one again, being a very community-driven culture. Uh, so I do see that as a big difference here where someone still wants me to do certain business events and deals on a Sunday. You know what I mean? I'm like, man, that's like, <laughs> can I have at least that day, you know, to myself? <laughs> have five hours for myself. <laughs> exactly. You know, so um, I, that's definitely a big difference. That's definitely a big difference, culturally speaking. Yeah. Um, well, it's the expression that Americans... Um, work to live and other cultures live to work. Mm -hmm. Big difference, yeah. big difference. Um, so yeah, and and really where one puts priorities. And as mm -hmm. you say, the, the family has a major priority. Uh, so I'm curious because I know from when I lived in Africa, this was the case, but um, if you had a factory in Africa, if you were, you know, the entrepreneur and had a, a, a staff there, um, if if one of the employees had a funeral to go to, what would happen? Oh, that's not negotiable. They're gonna go. Right. Exactly. Yeah, that's not negotiable. You'll you'll be like almost insulting an entire culture if you said no to that. You know. Right. Um, so that's a very great example you share. I mean, I know it's in in some people's eye, they'd be like, well, you know, you have to work anyways. But as you mentioned. It's about the quality of life. I know so many people in my culture that barely make $300 a month in salary, but mm -hmm. there's some of the joyous, most happy people mm -hmm. you could ever imagine. And I know here in, most, in more cases than not, people that are doing well financially, but they are just super stressed out. You know, the quality of life is not there. So even for me as a as someone that lives mostly here in the US that's part of the reason I love going back home to visit and and do business because it reminds me of those values it forces me to re-engage myself into those simple values of being present and and not getting so caught up into mm. whether it's financial gains or you know material gains for that matter absolutely um, I, I need to correct myself. Uh, certainly, if, if if an employee's loved one dies, the employee you know would take off to go to the funeral. Um, but it's normally I don't know two two days, maybe two or three days, and then perhaps vacation time to uh, sort out the the estate, for example, mm -hmm. the house and the belongings and all of that. Um, but I know in Africa that funerals can last many many days. At least in southern Africa, where I used to live, the funerals last many days, and it involves also inviting the neighbors and the friends, and basically having a feast. You have to feed all of the people who come to the funeral. Um, whereas in this country, very often the um, the guests would bring uh, would bring something for the family, mm -hmm. um, but in Africa, from what I at least the way it used to be, um, mm -hmm. the 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 grieving family provides the the food for all of the guests who are who assemble yeah is that the that's way? the same thing for us in guinea is that we would basically make a feast one day over the weekend or friday or something like that where 
the neighbors, like you said, family and friends will come and basically it's kind of like a sacrifice or uh, a giving, an offering, um, uh, a celebration of the person that passed away. Uh, but for us, luckily, it doesn't last multiple days, at least in Guinea. Uh, it could, but it could last. Uh, the festivities or the celebrations could um, last at least a couple of days. Yeah. Mm. Yeah, that's fascinating. Um, have you encountered any biz big business blunders, either that your company has made or perhaps ones that you've heard of, uh, either dealing, uh, well, you know, whether business blunders or cultural blunders, uh, dealing in the United States versus dealing in Africa? What do you mean by a blunder? I want to make sure I answer it correctly. Um, you start an initiative and you find out that it's absolutely not going to work because you're going in the wrong direction. I mean, just Got it. example, naming naming your product or naming your company and finding out that mm -hmm. like Pinto is not quite the right name for that. <laughs> um, Got it. Or a marketing strategy that you feel you know absolutely would work here, but when you take it abroad, it's you know just doesn't work at all. Gotcha. Okay. Thank you for the explanation. So yeah, um, I can use a lot of examples in Guinea specifically because a lot of Guinea's GDP comes from mining. So we're very fertile soil in my country with diamonds and bauxite, gold and silver. And the biggest um, export we have is bauxite, which is sent literally to Pennsylvania or Philadelphia directly oh. uh, in shipments. Um, Sorry, and that's and bauxite, by the way. Bauxite. I'm sorry, bauxite. I'm saying it in French. Sorry, <laughs> bauxite. Yeah. So that's one of our biggest uh, resources that gets sent out outside of uh, of Guinea. So long story short, the issue with that is, as you, as most people know about many African countries, is the issue of corruption. Mm -hmm. So although there's billions of dollars that are made through this um, through this resource um, because of corruption the city or the civilians don't basically get it to benefit from it. So that's one major example. Um, but besides that, for us specifically, um, because I've been surrounded by so many entrepreneurs, I've been cautious of how to really grow our miraculous business. So one example is, excuse me, we intentionally did not open a physical store for the last five, six years, like a retail space. Mm. Uh, we stayed online um, because one, we wanted to avoid that overhead, but we also saw the trend even five, six years ago that a lot of uh, brick and mortar businesses were not doing well. So we, which, and we had no idea back then that there was going to be a pandemic happening <laughs> sometime soon. So while many of our um uh, competitors or even people in our industry went out of business during the pandemic. That was a blessing for us to be able to sustain mm -hmm. and try through it. Uh, so I'm grateful for that being part of our DNA since we we launched six years ago. Yeah. So you're still online. Is that correct? Only We're still online, online, but only online. But we, of course, we do plan on having some stores in the near future. But that was. Um, something that we were conscious of in the beginning. Uh, and it also forced us to really solidify the relationships that we do have with people and clients uh, so that can naturally network for us. That's fantastic. Well, it was very wise without knowing how wise it was going to be. <laughs> That's a great way to put it. <laughs> That's a great way to put it. 
Um, you talked about your mother. Is she in the same business, Marakia Lord? Does she have her own businesses? Uh, she has her own business because all she does is African clothes. Uh, and she sells them. She brings them to the U.S. Or she, what, what mm-hmm. is she? Yes, she does it back home. Like right now, last week she was in Senegal, and uh, she went over there to get some uh, some fabrics and things and take it to uh, Guinea to tailors and things. Oh. But now, so she's more slowed down. She doesn't travel as much because she's uh, um, getting older. But yeah, she's she's never had a a traditional job all my life, which is oh. really unique in my culture to have a, a woman be the breadwinner of the family and to be yeah. such an entrepreneur. Yeah. Yeah, that's fascinating. I know that you came to this country when you were 12, I believe. Yeah, um, great memory. And I'm sure I, I'd like to, I'd like you to share with our listening audience the experiences mm-hmm. that you had. Um, but I was under the impression that your mother obviously came with you. But has your mother now moved back to Guinea? Yeah, great question. Yeah, she only brought me to the U.S. and stayed here for a couple of years. So now what she does is that she just travels back and forth, um, maybe like once a year. But because of the pandemic, she just stayed in Guinea much longer this time. Um, But yeah, you're completely right. She brought me for my 12th birthday present, not to age myself, but I literally left Guinea on October 23rd, 1997. Um, I came here literally on my birthday and joined my brother and sister that lived here already. And that first year was the most brutal year of my life. (laughs) That was because of bullying and having to learn English. Exactly. I was learning English cold turkey. Um, The most brutal time the kids were bullying me. They were, my nickname back then was... uh, African booty scratcher because they thought that all Africans walked around naked and had no clothes. You know, kids <laughs> at that age have no filter, so they just said whatever they, they they wanted to say. So I would literally call my sister I had dropped every day, telling her crying and telling her that I wanted to go back home. And luckily, she had the wisdom of telling me that just give it a year. If you don't like it after a year, we can totally take you back home. And of course, after a year, I started to make friends. And- yeah. That. yeah, that's wonderful. It's a great adjustment. Yeah. And, <laughs> you know, when, when people go to new countries, um, it, at first, well, when, when they go to settle in new countries, mm-hmm. uh, at first, it can be very exciting. Um, mm-hmm. And, you know, the, the uh, not necessarily the, the glamour of it, but, you know, just everything mm-hmm. is new and exciting and fun and you're mm-hmm. learning all the time. And then once mm-hmm. you settle in, then it becomes much more difficult. <laughs> you have to pay yeah. the electric bill or you have to get a telephone <laughs> to you know, figure out how to do many of these things, which we just take for granted. Um, absolutely, absolutely. I think if I had came from uh, at least an English speaking country from Africa, like Nigeria or something, mm-hmm. at least, I would have had a head start in my English, but the fact that I had never taken any class of English and I was cold turkey, that made the transition a lot tougher. And the other thing that you uh, talked about as far as like starting to pay for things, the first thing that it makes me think about is back then there were calling cards. So whenever my family needed to call my family back home, we were spending hundreds of dollars per month (laughs) just to call back home, you know? 
versus now you download any one of these apps and you're able to communicate with people on Wi-Fi. So, yeah. <laughs> That's fascinating. And, you know, it's it's funny because you use the word calling card. This is another example of English. Um, in French, a calling card is a carte de visite. And mm -hmm. we call it a business card here. Yeah. Um, certainly um, back at, oh, 50 years ago or more, when you mm -hmm. went to visit someone, each, each person, a man or a woman, would have a card with his or her name on it. And, mm -hmm. you know, you could give it to the butler, you, you would hand it to you know, someone to say, mm. you know, I'm waiting to meet the host. Um, mm. That's certainly the way it was in this country in colonial times and revolutionary mm. times. Um, mm. But that, again, so calling card now means something very different. Wow, that's so cool. I love that. That's why I love my conversations with you. I always learn something new. That's awesome. Thank you. I like that. Mm -hmm. So, um, I know your life is not all business, of course, because you're African and you don't always, you don't work on Sundays, if you can. <laughs> I try, I try. <laughs> so what do you like to do uh, outside of business? Oh man, I, music is my therapy. I love music. I was in marching band for four years between high school and college. Um, so sometimes, especially here in San Diego, uh, I'll go take salsa lessons and things oh. like that. I, I love that. I've, I've crossed the border. I've probably been to Baja, Mexico over 20 times, go there for lunch. Um, so music and travel whenever I can are the two favorite escapes for me. Yeah. Fantastic. Yeah. Um, one other question just about business uh, to, get, mm -hmm. to get back to that. Um, mm -hmm. How do you measure success? How do you measure your own success? I presume you consider your, that your company is very successful. Mm -hmm. And so how? Uh, that's a great question. I think at this stage in my life, I'm, not I'm no longer attached to perfection. What I am attached to is progress. Mm. Am I growing? Am I improving? Am I making a difference? And as long as I can answer yes to most of those things, I'm happy. I'm at peace. So for me, the fact that we've grown, we've improved, um, we've faced many challenges, but we've learned from each one of them. We continue to adapt. Um, we're surviving well through the pandemic. So to me, those are the things that make me happy. It makes me feel um, successful because I went all in onto something I believe in. Mm. Because what I fear the most at at any stage of my life is later on on my last days here is to have major regrets. And what I do know for sure is that um, failure wastes ounces comparing to regret. You know, I would rather go all in into something I believe in and face challenges than stay comfortable and wonder later on, how come I didn't do anything? You know, because I have done that as well. <laughs> That's truly wonderful. It's great that you've got that inspiration that, and that motivation to do it that way. Yeah. Uh, is there anything else you'd like to share with us before we close? Yeah, I'm, I'm grateful for this opportunity, this conversation. Um, I'm grateful for more people, not just Americans, being open to international aspects of things, different ways of thinking, different ways of doing business. So I'm just uh, glad that this platform exists and I want to encourage more people to continue to step outside of their local areas 
uh, to connect with more people because believe it or not, we have way more in common than what you see on TV. <laughs> yes, very true. And also to step out of their comfort zones yeah, to improve themselves. That's always exactly. probably the most difficult. Yeah. Well, thank you so much, Mo. It's been an absolute pleasure to have you as a guest on, on our show. Um, and uh, I hope you'll join us again another time. My pleasure. My pleasure. So this has been Philip Auerbach. Please join us again next week for another edition of Global Gurus and their stories on international business. Thank you.